Good morning. <clears throat> well, um, today's a day I generally observe radio silence. But since I've been doing these live videos, I, uh, I figured at least I needed to have something up on Tuesday because I normally do. And um, so I thought I'd just record this and have it published on Tuesday. And you probably won't see me out there on social media anywhere today. The reason is on March the 7th, 2012, 11 years ago, I walked into my son's small trailer and found him hanging from a leather belt. He was dead. He had committed suicide. And it's hard for me to talk about even now um, because, you know, he was my son. He was my last son, my younger son, the last of my children. He was born extremely premature at 24 weeks. He wasn't supposed to live overnight, much less into young adulthood. And, you know, he was, he was pretty sick as a, as an infant. And so he was fighting and I was fighting on his behalf from the minute he was born, actually before, because I had a lot of problems in carrying my children. So every pregnancy that I had was difficult and I had to fight to try to keep them. And I was only successful twice, and, and the second time was with Brian, and he didn't make it very long. <laughs> he was born at, at 24 weeks and spent 99 days in the neonatal ICU, and um, he, he had a lot of illnesses as an infant and as a small child, and he had some developmental delays that he did overcome. And he had some physical delays that he did overcome by the time he was in about third grade, fourth grade. He was pretty well caught up all the way around. <clears throat> but um, I couldn't I couldn't save him from everything. So uh, I thought I'll um, I'll do a little bit of a show here today and then uh, spend you know, the rest of my day, just quiet. <laughs> and it's a, it's a hard show. It's probably going to be hard for some of you guys to watch all the way through. And um, it's not a plea for sympathy. It's just an explanation of where I'm at today, what's going on and why. And Please forgive me if I get a little animated, if I call for sputter. I've tried to tell this story before. Sometimes I can be successful with it, sometimes I can't. I was a member of a... Um, it was a support group for family and friends of suicide. Um... I say victims, I guess, 
to talk and work through the grief and things. And I attended some of the meetings locally. And when it came my turn to speak about my son's suicide and how it had affected me, I would start to cough. Sometimes it was really honest to goodness, external factors that would do that because we'd be meeting outside, sitting at a table in a picnic area or something and the pollen count would be up or the mold or something and, and it would be a legitimate physical allergy making me cough. Sometimes it was just kind of nerves. And I do get dry. I'm already dry trying <laughs> just recording this and there's nobody really there, you know, yet. It's just the idea of it. But my son, Brian, like I said, he was born premature. He was very small. He was, uh, <laughs> Barbie dolls were about, about as tall as he was when he was born. And he was just a little over a pound, a pound, nine ounces. He was so tiny, so tiny. I get tore up. I don't want to go into abortion in the rights and wrongs and that kind of thing, but people abort babies older than he was when he was born. And I know what he looked like when he was born. And I know what I went through when he was born. And I just can't imagine people would knowingly do that unless they were just near death's doorstep. I mean, and I don't know that that happens very often. It's just people only knew. But anyway, um, yeah, he was, he was very premature. He was, he was rather sickly for a while, but he was so happy as a baby, always smiling and giggling. <laughs> he and his brother would argue over the Nintendo. His brother was about three years older. Well, he is three years older than him, not about. And uh, his brother would be playing Nintendo. And Brian would come over and try to get the remote because he was small, you know. And they'd argue and fuss about that. But they got along really well for the most part. The day we brought Brian home from the hospital, we set his brother down in a chair with a pillow in his lap. And said, now we're going to help you hold him. But you have to hold him on this pillow because he's so tiny. <laughs> and we, somewhere there's a video, if it survived, I... I haven't been able to find it because mom videoed it and it was on a VHS tape. And uh, since she passed, we were trying to find some of those. We can't find them. But she had a video of him sitting there in his brother's lap holding him. And he, he just says his little tiny fingers and little tiny toes. And I, I, could, I almost cry every time I think of that. But... Uh, Anyway, Brian, Brian did fair in school. He wasn't an A student, but he wasn't an E student or F student. He, was, he had some A's and some B's and some C's and the occasional D, but he, he did pass and he graduated high school. And um, he was going to go in the Marines. And the day he was supposed to leave, they got to talking about his training. And it wasn't the way the recruiter told us it would be. The recruiter said that, you know, once he finished his 
I don't remember if they call it basic training in Marines, but I know they did. And when his dad was in the army, it was basic training. Once he went to his advanced training, he was supposed to take some trades. He was supposed to be learning trades. Welding was a big thing. We were pushing for that. And when he agreed to go in, welding was told to him he would be able to do. It, it wasn't the only thing, but it was the, it was the main thing that, you know, we wanted him to have. And the day he was supposed to go, they got to talking about it. He was reading his paperwork, and it was there was nothing like that. There was nothing about the trades. It was something totally different. And so he ended up not going in. And he was trying to think of what to do, you know, whether he'd go in another branch. So he signed up for the um, uh, National Guard. But then um, he was uh, he was also working at a local grocery store. Um, and then he was hit with an accusation of sexual assault. And you guys know, you men know, that if if a woman makes an accusation of any type of sexual assault, sexual harassment, rape, any of that, even if you're innocent as the wind-driven snow, you can't erase that stain. It will always be there. You can't recover from that fully. There will always be people who are suspicious. Well, that happened with Brian, and um, it was, it's a, it's a difficult family dynamic to try to explain. My I, I have uh, two half-sisters, My one from my father's first marriage, and then one my mother had um, before she met my father uh, um, out of wedlock, and a relative adopted that her. <clears throat> but I've always known she was my sister, and I always knew this one was my sister. And so the... Um, one of the daughters of my dad's first child uh, and I got into a big altercation and this was many years ago obviously and actually it was an argument we got very heated and I at one point said I would divulge to her very racist husband and that was part of the argument there was the fact that her husband was rather racist uh, not a not an not a not a stretch it's a, a factual statement uh, based on the words that came out of his mouth at one time anyway I in the in this argument said I will let him know that you were involved in an interracial physical relationship when you were in high school <laughs> Should I said it? No, I shouldn't have. Should I have been arguing? No, I shouldn't have been arguing with her. I knew better. And this was my niece. And she punched me in the face. Caught me right under the eye. It eventually got really ugly black. But So we fought around a little bit and eventually were separated and went our different ways. And the very next morning, a police officer shows up on my doorstep. And she had called and reported my son for sexually assaulting her young daughter. 
Now, at this time, he was 18, and this was supposed to have happened two years before. So I get her on the phone. I said, well, what, what, what is this all about? And she goes off on some story. And I told her I don't believe it. If it were true, if my daughter had been assaulted that way, and we're talking a minor, they were, I think, four years apart in age. I think it wasn't very much. Four years, I think, uh, difference in age. <clears throat> I would have been on the police, on the horn to the police immediately. I, and I asked her, I said, so why didn't you go to the police immediately? And she had no answer, just arguments. I said, did you take her for, uh, to the hospital for an examination? No. So there was no evidence, just the accusation. But that's all it takes to destroy a young man. It's an accusation. So uh, that set the ball rolling. When I talked to him, he said, of course, he didn't do it. I believe him. I've always believed in his innocence. Of course, I'm his mother. I'm biased. But I believe him. And um, I don't, there was, the incident was supposed to have happened, uh, like I said, two years prior, at a family gathering, a holiday dinner, a very modest house, small rooms, and people all around. So I don't, you know, there were no witness. In a room full of people, there were no witness. And there was nothing until we had that argument and that fight in the street. So um, there was probably 10 to 15 people, family members, in that small house when that was supposed to have gone on. And it wasn't supposed to have been in a back room or a bathroom. It was in the dining room. It's in the dining room. So there's people in the dining room. And it, anyway, see, I still get upset <laughs> about it. I get angry and my blood pressure goes up. But anyway. Now, my son wasn't perfect by any means. Um, you know, he's a teenage boy trying to make his way to adulthood. His dad has passed away some years before from um, very aggressive type of leukemia. He made mistakes, but he didn't do that. But um, he was charged, and suddenly now a bunch of his friends can't be around him. And some of them are moving on to other places in college and things. He lost his job, not supposedly not for that, but suspicious timing and it was hard for him to find work with that cloud over his head the attorney that we hired was pressing to pay them off uh, to shut up but when I asked I said is he gonna have to be um, reported as a sex offender for the rest of his life remember now he's eight he's like 18 an 18 year old who could possibly live to be 60 or 78 years old 50, 60 years, he's got a report as a sex offender. 
for something he, I don't think he did, but would have been when he was 16. Um, and the answer was, yeah, he probably would, you know, and he said, no, I don't want to do that. And so we decided we would fight, you know. Then he, um, he ends up getting involved online with a young lady. She's not underage, but she's close to his age, 18 or 19. And um, she tells him that, you know, could, could he drive her to Massachusetts? She has a friend there that's being abused. <laughs> she wants to go get, it, get her. The girl wants out of that situation and... It sounds all it's it doesn't make any sense to me, but he told her sure. And um he didn't steal my car, he was using my car. I knew he had my car. I didn't know he was going to Massachusetts in it. But the girl drives down here in her mom's SUV with her mom's credit cards and billfold, and they take off for Massachusetts. I get a call that they've both been arrested and um, the girl was released to her parents and she was on her way home. My son was being detained. I said, well, why is my son being detained? Oh, they'll probably release him to you when you get there. I said, no, if he's being detained, he's not. Wait a minute. No, this isn't making any sense. Well, I just thought I would let you know. So what happened was on the, while they're in Boston heading to this Oh, the third girl's place, the car breaks down because he didn't put any oil in it. He didn't know. Anyway, he's a very naive boy. I drive to Boston with my husband. It's, it's a nightmare trying to figure out where he was. I get to a couple of police stations and they point me to a different police station. I get over there, go in, I get the keys to my car, but Brian's at the jail. So was he in jail? Well, you know, there's this suspicion of why he was here and, you know, he's not supposed to leave West Virginia. And I said, that's not true. I have a copy of his, his bond. I posted my property for his bond. It doesn't re restrict him to, to the state. It doesn't say he can't travel. Well, I don't know. We just called and found out that he was uh, had charges against him. I said, but you, you kidding? How did you arrest him? That's not, he didn't do anything wrong here. Well, on the suspicion of, I said, but that you can't do that. And I was getting nowhere. I was trying to be polite, but I was getting agitated and they gave me the keys to my car. We got the car out of the impound lot and um, we go over, we, we had a room and we go over to see him at the jail. And um, I'd never been in one before like that. So I was very confused and they could tell and they said, normally we don't allow visitors at this time, but since you came up from West Virginia and the circumstances, we'll, we'll let you see him. And I went up and talked to him. I said, what the heck is going on? 
He said, Ma, I just was trying to help her out. I don't know. I got up here and the car broke down and the police came and she was crying. And I just don't know. Well, the charges that they were holding him on, they switched around a couple times. And I stayed in contact with his, att his attorney up there. And, um, you know, it was all, well, it'll blow over, it'll blow over. But he couldn't leave the jail because he had no job. There's no family. We have nobody there. He'd been on the streets. Or he stayed in jail. He, stayed, he ended up staying in the jail for a year. And they dropped the charges. A year. And they dropped the charges. So while people back here were bad-mouthing him, they're dropping the charges. But you can't get past that either. So he's being held up there for a year, which makes him miss his hearings here in West Virginia. And they dropped the charges there, but that doesn't change the fact that he's missed his hearings here. And so he's in trouble for that. So when they dropped the charges in Boston, they wouldn't let him come home with me. I was there waiting to take him home. They released him to the West Virginia State Police who flew up there to get him. And they flew him back. And he was in the regional jail for three or four months before they had another hearing. And then they put him in a, um, he, he, I go up to see him after one of his hearings because I didn't know they'd had it. And, and um, he called and said they were sending him to a, well, he called my mom and he said they, he was going to a program in, for um, uh, juvenile offenders. And. I go up to visit him before he, he heads out there to talk to him, and he'd taken a deal. He said, I'm tired, Mom. I'm tired, of this. I'm tired of this. I just want this over with. And he'd agreed to a guilty plea and to go to this program for youthful offenders because the original charges were when he was underage. And um, he could do that because now he wasn't underage, and I couldn't be there to, to hear what was going on and talk to him. So he spent a year in Boston, had the charges dropped. He spent three months here in a regional facility until he got his hearing. And then he spent nine months in the program, um, about an hour and a half from here for youthful offenders. And um, he was finally released in February of, of early February, 2012. And, you know, he'd spent over two years in in custody and uh, when he got home there were posters up that there's a sex offender living in our community and we need to run him out <laughs> so um you know, he's still on, on probation or, or whatever. He has to report for like a year or two. Uh, I think a year initially. I don't remember now. And he had to report to the local sheriff detachment just above us about a mile or so. And we have to take him around uh, because he's not allowed within so many feet of the alleged victim. And... In order to do that, we have to go the long way around every time we go out of town. So we would go the long way around up there, and that sheriff deputy was just a jackass. He was a jackass. 
And he would tell my son that nobody wants him living in this community, that he needs to find someplace else to live. And that he's going to uh, measure the distance. And if he's found that any portion of his residence is within the, I don't know, it's a thousand feet or something. I don't, I don't remember now. Uh, he's going to put him back in jail. And he would talk to him like that every time he went to check in. And he had to get a job, but he didn't have a driver's license. So I have a business, a legitimate business. I've had an LLC on the books since 2005. And so I put Brian, well, I put it, took him to a staffing, uh, a temporary staffing agency. And, you know, I talked to him, I said, we'll do this. We'll get, we'll get you started back up. We'll, so you're working, you're earning a little bit of money and you can get your driver's license and you can be working for me while you're trying to find something else. And we'll, we'll get through this. It's going to take a while, but it'll be okay. We'll, we'll get through it. But every time he'd go to check in with this guy, give him, you know, <laughs> talk to him like crap. Now, uh, broadly, I don't have an issue with law enforcement, but there are some that are absolute jackasses, and this guy was one. And um, he he told him, you know, he 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 if he put a, a toe out of line, he was going back to jail, and he could do it. And um, he he disputed that he was actually working for me, and. Um, told me that if I got rude with him, he could just, you know, put him back in jail. I mean, he, he was just a manipulative little jerk. So by March the 7th, Brian's texting a young woman. She's over a, I mean, she's over 18. She's somebody that he knew through a mutual friend who had moved to Kentucky. And he's telling her, and this other friend had committed suicide, too, while Brian was in jail. He's telling her that he thought about it. He knew what to do, but he was afraid. And uh, she tells him to sec it up and just do it. I saw the texts on his phone. I, I showed them to the police officers, the state police, and they said they couldn't do anything with it at that time. So Brian did. That next morning on March the 7th, I texted him to tell him I was on, his, on my way to pick him up at work. And he didn't answer me. And I went over at the normal time around 7.30, knocked on the door, hollered at him, said, are you up? We got to go. And he didn't answer. And I opened the door and went in and there he was. He'd taken the belt and he'd fastened it up high um, and he just squatted down and leaned into it. And, um, you know, once, once he passed out, once the circulation was cut off to the point that he passed out, the rest of it was just natural. It just happened. His own body weight and all that stuff. And I opened the door to see my son there in this strange position. He was fully dressed. I actually had someone ask me at his funeral if it was a sexual thing. And I'm like, what? I mean, I knew what they were talking about, but I just absolutely couldn't believe someone asked me at his funeral, his own mother. But he was fully dressed except for his shoes. And um, 
His face was black and his tongue was swollen and just was awful. And uh, <clears throat> you know, once once he once he leaned forward, and that's how you'll if you if you look it up, if you look at how and I did, and I <laughs> it haunts me to this day. You can do the same with a sheet. So when they get to talking about Epstein and his suicide and this, that, and the other, you you can all you have to do is have something tight enough on you that it stops the circulation. It doesn't have to crush anything. You don't have to jerk somebody like a hangman's noose and knock a chair out from them. All they have to do is just lean forward enough to cut off the circulation and and their and their breath. And once they pass out and they lean forward, their own body weight does the rest. So He was lifeless, obviously. His face was bloated. His tongue was black. His knees were bent. All he had to do was stand up. But once once he passed out, that wasn't an option anymore. So even if he was trying to change his mind, there was a point where he wouldn't have physically been able to do it. <clears throat> so there's that award-winning television show called mash and that theme song suicide is painless but it's not that's a lie because my my son's suicide hurts me even to this day and every time i think about it it hurts it hurts the ones who are left behind I, you know, I go through all those stages again from time to time, and, and I wonder often how, how, did I miss signs, or had he thought this through so much that he, there was no signs? Did he know he was going to do this whenever he got to go home? Did he have it planned? I mean, he obviously had looked it up somewhere sometime. He'd only been home six weeks. I spent 10 years paying off a credit card that I used, traveling back and forth to Boston. It was very expensive. I flew out there a couple of times just to go to, just to see him and to go to the hearings. I took my mom out there a couple of times, but she was getting where she couldn't travel very well. It was really hard on her. And then after he died, um, paying for part of the funeral and buying the bench that my mom wanted for him. She wanted a bench because we buried him with his sisters. I had two premature daughters. They didn't live very long. and They were buried out there where mom's family, her brothers and sisters and her parents. And on the other side of the cemetery, her grandparents and a lot of other family members that had bought lots there at that particular cemetery when it first opened up. And mom wanted a bench, and I bought a bench so that mom could have a bench at Brian's grave. I I started off telling you, you know, that I don't I don't talk about it much, and I don't, 
I still get really upset over the, the bullshit charges. I still believe he wasn't guilty and that he was exhausted and in his exhaustion was coerced into taking the plea. I mean, there's a national organization called the Innocence Project and they get dozens of people exonerated every day. Some of them have been in jail for decades and they show that the, that they were coerced, that that evidence was made up, that the charges were were false. And like I said earlier, you guys, you know, and mothers, and, and er actually everyone knows that all a woman has to do is make a sexual claim against a guy, and he's stained for life, whether he did it or not. And I'm not rationalizing and saying that people have a right to sexually abuse other people. I'm not. I'm just saying it's way too easy to make that claim. Way too easy. And that deputy that, that hassled him for weeks, he got his. And I didn't have to do it. I left it in the hands of the Lord. And I said, God, you know, I don't understand this mess, but I know that I can't be, seek vengeance on this man. I got to leave it to you. Well, yeah, the guy was prosecuted, lost his job for domestic violence. And you know, a cop that's convicted of domestic violence can't be a cop anymore so it's not the same as harassing my kid but you know I'll take it and when uh, when when Brian first came home I was I was running for office I was running for West Virginia House of Delegates and you know the um the primary season starts in January here. And so it's just been a few weeks when he died. And uh, I continued, I made it through the primary and I didn't get elected. It didn't come up, it, but it, I didn't get elected because I'm in a heavily, mm, I don't want to go there, but the, the party I represent was heavily outnumbered and I wasn't expected to win. But I came very close. I came very dangerously close. But I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And um, I was serving. Had I been elected, I would have uh, resigned anyway. But I was, I was serving as this, as a uh, conservation, soil and water conservation district supervisor, for my district. And uh, I resigned because I just couldn't, in my grief, I just couldn't focus anymore. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And I got depressed my own self. And I honestly considered what life would be like if I just followed him. But I didn't really want to, but I, I would get down. So that, I, it was so dark, just spiritually dark around me. I'd get up and go through the motions and just sit and stare and some days just cry and I was sitting on the couch I hadn't gone into the office that day because I just couldn't function and I was flipping channels and I come across a, a television preacher and it wasn't one of those freaky ones that slaps you on the head or you know dances around or whatever this guy was he's real he's he's legit 
and he was preaching on blind Bartimaeus and he was reading that's part of the scripture and he said Bartimaeus heard the crowds and asked what was going on and they said Jesus is coming and Bartimaeus just started crying out Jesus thou son of David have mercy on me and it struck me and the pastor repeated it and I started crying and I hit the floor on my knees and I just cried out the same Jesus son of David have mercy on me I can't go on I can't go on like this I need your help and it was like a weight was lifted off of me and the darkness was moving away I won't say it hasn't come back on occasion but that was a turning point for me that I knew I'd be able the help of Christ to get through and stay here on this side of the grass and uh, that there was something else that I was needed for and Christ has been there for me ever since and I know there's people who consider it a fairy tale you know I'm sorry for you I'm sorry for you and there's people out there who are fighting and struggling to not commit suicide. And I'm praying for you. And I can only share my story and hope that you'll ask me about it and that that will help you. But, you know, as a parent, it's a challenge, not just that I've lost my son, but our children make bad decisions when they're little, when they're in their teen years, and as adults, they make bad decisions sometimes. And some of them are seriously bad decisions. And um, we love them anyway. I mean, you don't hate your child. It's your child. Even though you see things that they do, I know that's not right and you think did I cause this and the fact of the matter is they made those decisions Brian made the decision to go to Boston it was a dumb decision he didn't break any laws doing it heck he didn't even break his his uh, his uh, bond the the instructions there was nothing in there that said he couldn't go someplace but it was a dumb decision And we have to accept this as a parent that they do this and sometimes it's really hard and even if you see that your child even as an adult child has done something really really heinous our heart breaks because we still love them and we live in a country that claims that once you've served your your uh, uh, debt to society that you should be allowed to rebuild your life but in fact in practice we don't let people do that and so society sometimes forces the recidivism sometimes it's by choice these people just you know choose this lifestyle of you know 
you see the riots, you see the crime, you see the gangs. Sometimes they choose those lifestyles. Sometimes we force them because we don't give them the opportunity. We claim we do, but we really don't. The woman putting the posters up around town was the wife of a, of a school principal. I get her motivation. She's saying, oh, these kids should be around a sex offender. But he paid his debt. And there's no reason, there was no reason to suspect that he would have fathered another child. He didn't even have the chance to get back on his feet and get out of here. Not, not to go somewhere else, but to, to build, rebuild his life. You know, and it's like, just generally in churches, people say, you know, it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, so is, so is the rest of the community. Because you have people in churches who will say, uh, God can forgive anything. But then they'll turn around and not, not forgive someone for something. Recently, a lady at my church told about her grandson he finally started going back to church because he was dating a young lady that was going to church and she kept after him and he says, okay, I'll go. Well, he's all tatted up. He's tattoo guru there, you know. The pastor of the church he was attending was trying to make an example out of him, called him forward to talk about his tattoos and not in a positive way. And now the boy doesn't go back to church again. So if Christ can forgive a murderer, if Christ can forgive the thief on the cross, he can forgive the boy if tattoos are in fact wrong. I don't know where Christ stands on that. I didn't ask him recently. But if Christ can forgive someone of murder, then if tattooing yourself is wrong, he can forgive you of that too. I'm pretty sure of that. But we like to hold these things against people. We don't really forgive them. And if you say, I'll forgive, but I won't forget, you're not forgiving. Because God, through Christ, forgets when we plead for forgiveness. He forgives and forgets. He doesn't bring it back up to your face and say, remember that time I forgave you for kicking that dog? That's not how he works. <sighs> So my experience with my son and the so-called justice system in the United States is the reason I don't support the death penalty anymore. At one time, I was pretty hardcore for the death penalty. I don't, I'm not so much anymore. I'm not so much anymore because I've seen how my son was railroaded. Now, he wouldn't have gotten the death penalty anyway, but if they can railroad my son into something like that, and he's just a kid at the time, what if... Who else have they railroaded? What else have they ginned up and faked? We're starting to see people who get left, who don't get charges against them because of, of hiding evidence and making stuff up. And, you know, we've got a, a whole federal government agency hiding the truth behind, you know, the 2020 flu. <laughs> It's coming out now, but how many people's lives have been destroyed because of it? 
if those people had been put to the death penalty, think of these people who we've put through cancel culture. I'm not, never was a big Roseanne Barr fan, but let's say that she was put to death because of her position on um, all of that stuff. I want to be careful because I don't, I don't want to see this broadcast pulled down, but what if she'd received the death penalty because of that and come to find out she was right? You can't bring her back. So I, I can no longer support the death penalty. Uh, uh, maybe if you have video and audio that makes it without a reasonable doubt, but even then we're starting to see uh, artificial intelligence and, and, People's deep fake, they call it, able to manipulate video and audio to say and do anything you want. These are dangerous times, and I just don't think the death penalty, I just, I just can't support it. So the anniversary of Brian's suicide and his birthday are exceptionally painful for me, even this far out and I take the day off I, I take both days I take his birthday off and I take the day he committed suicide off his death day and I, I try not to do any social media that day unfortunately I have a guest coming they they got the room booked before I closed it off on the calendar but it, that'll be okay. I, I'm not going to be online. I don't think. I usually don't. Um, this obviously is pre-recorded. I'll spend time with the Lord in prayer, talking to Him about my pain. He'll comfort me again. And I'll be fine, and then I'll move on come morning. So, that's it. 40-some minutes in. Just to explain why I'm not going to be here live. <laughs> um, and I just don't have, I don't have it in me to go on any further. I'm just tired. I get tired when I talk about it because I get depressed. And then I'm trying not to cry because when I cry, I snot. And nobody needs to see that. I'm not looking for pity. I'm not looking for comment. I'm not looking for anything. It's just a statement of how I choose not to um, do social media today and why and talk about a little bit of the life of my son and, and a little bit about getting over him. Not him, but his death. That was when I actually returned to the Lord full tilt. I returned to the Lord. I rededicated myself and it has been a journey and it is not always been an easy journey. As, as some of you know, some of the difficulties at my church that I'm trying to help keep it afloat. It'll work if God wants it to work. I, I can't pretend to know his plan. It could be that his plan is to throw me into the fire and mold me from there or 
I don't know. But the death of my son forced me into a dark place that I don't know that I'd ever been in. And it caused me to remember that the Lord was there and I only needed to cry out to him. And he's always been there. But those are other stories for other days. So it's, I've rambled enough. I'm going to stop there and um, I'll get this loaded to go for Tuesday, the 7th of March. And um, I will see you again on Friday for Friday Live and Unscripted. Thank you for sticking around this long and listening to the full story. And um, I'll be back soon. We'll talk again. Bye-bye.